Hello. Hi. What would you like to have a conversation about? I'd like to have a conversation about Ex Machina. Hello, I am Professor Robert E.G. Black, and this is Minutia Ex Machina. With me this week is Father David Mowry. Hello. Now, you just saw this movie. I did just see this movie. Well, first, uh, thank you very much for giving me an excuse to watch <laughs> this movie because it's been on my list ever since it came out in no small part due to the fact that both Oscar Isaac and Tom Gleason came on my radar with episode seven, yeah. The Force Awakens. And I thought, oh, I, li- I like those two guys. They're pretty good actors. I would yeah. like to see them in a non-Star Wars thing. And <laughs> I was really also intrigued. I, I, we talked on Five Minutes of Arrival uh, yeah. about I mean, just my love for science fiction in general right. and that the worlds that opens you up to and the very intentional, philosophical and kind of humanistic conversations that happen in Ex Machina were yeah. really interesting. And, and I was so grateful to have the chance to not only enjoy the movie, but think about the movies as I was going <laughs> through. Because normally I have to do that in two go arounds where I watch the movie like, oh, that was really good. I need to watch it again. And now think about yeah, what I'm seeing. Exactly. Yeah. I have that problem. I watch something and I'm like, I need to watch that again right away. <laughs> they're not always available. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the most recent movie that happened for me was Knives Out mm. because it was such a well, I mean, the, the writing was so what so well done and yeah. rewarded repeat viewings yeah. because Johnson played so fair with the mystery. Oh, yeah. He tells you outright what's happening. Mm-hmm. And even then you're not sure. Yeah. Because you're like, no, that can't be what's happening. No, it doesn't. And it just all holds <laughs> up. Yeah. So... You liked this movie then? Well, like like is is <laughs> an interesting word for it. Yeah. I had a lot of thoughts okay. coming out of it. Just generally speaking, the themes of the that presented by this hyper Turing test that mm-hmm. Nathan is running with Caleb and Ava present questions about personhood. They present questions about what it means to be human. Yeah. What's fascinating to me as a as a Roman Catholic priest are the religious themes that are very intentionally woven through the movie. Yeah. All of the names of the characters, except for the Japanese AI. Yeah, Kyoko are all Old Testament names. Right. Ava very intentionally evokes Eve. Caleb is a figure from the Genesis story. And Nathan is the name of a prophet in the court of King David. Right. And so you have, you know, that can't be a coincidence. Oh, no. No, not in, not in this kind of movie. And the line early on that kind of helps, that at least perked my ears and set off my antenna was that line where Caleb says, we're, we're talking about the history of gods here. Yep. And Nathan in his monomaniacal, egomaniac kind of way makes it about being a god. Mm-hmm. Now, again, how much of that is a game? How much is that him being intentionally obtuse? Who can say? But that theme was something I keyed into. Because if we're talking about creation, if we're talking about humans continuing that role of creation and trying to find something that reflects our own personhood, then what kind of image is Ava made in? Right. Now, she is ex machina. She comes from the machine, but just as in the Genesis story, human beings come from the clay of the earth and yet are made in the image and likeness of God. How is Ava being made? 
And well, I think the upshot of the movie is that we have to be very careful about what we make as human beings, because what we make is made in our image yeah. and likeness. And uh, we're not great. No, <laughs> we are not super people. And Nathan certainly is not. Oh, of, of all of all of us. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So the ending of the movie has weird kind of anti-Eden themes to it, where the creation kicks out the creators and instead of exiting into a barren and lifeless setting, she walks out into the garden. She walks out into life. Into the forest and everything else. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm wearing four inch heels and i was a little mad at the movie like <laughs> she has humongous heels on what is going on and then they showed her carrying them when she was out in the forest i thought okay fair enough good job movie <laughs> I, i'm back on board now well her options for shoes probably was limited i agree not a lot of sensible female <laughs> shoes in nathan's closet yeah i agree and caleb we might not notice in the movie i believe donald gleason's fairly tall so his feet might be pretty big too mm-hmm. so they're not gonna fit well he, he strikes me as a one pair of shoes kind of guy <laughs> yeah, and he's got them all unlocked in a room. She'd have to open mm-hmm. the door to get those shoes. Mm-hmm. And then she has to be more overt about what she's doing to him. Whereas just leaving him in there, that sort of okay. Like he's got a chance. He might be able to find a way out. Uh, not with those noodly arms. No, he probably, I don't, I'm not sure what room he's locked in at the end. I think it's part of Nathan's office, which, so there might be furniture he could use to break something. I'm not sure Mm -hmm. But most of the building is concrete Mm -hmm. poured around rock, natural rock structures. So there's not going to be very many weaknesses. And that's another theme since she ascends up the stairs out of the complex and ascends even further with the helicopter pilot. And I don't know what story she tells him, but it works. I assume he's told to ask no questions. Uh, That's probably fair. He's supposed to show up every week. And if there's a passenger at one end of the trip or the other, he picks them up Mm -hmm. because Nathan doesn't want info being out there. No. So a really fascinating movie and presented a lot of questions. And as AI stories go, I think it did the best job of capturing the the flawed nature of human creators. Yeah. That it wasn't so caught up in, oh, the dangers of computers and Skynet and blah, blah, blah. But it was a good story in that it provided reflection upon how we are coming to this technology as human persons with our own hangups, with our own flaws, with our own desires. I mean, even the bit about how internet pornography got incorporated into the story with Nathan using that data to shape Ava's face itself to Caleb's preferences. Wow, it's it's really skeevy, but an honest reflection of the state of how we're using technology now in a widespread way. And from Nathan's perspective, that's a fantastic way to set up the test too. Mm-hmm. create something he will get attached to. Mm-hmm. And you got to do your research and know what does he like? What does he want? Or program him and decide what he wants. But yeah, well, and that, that's also the, the question about how much programming goes into this because there's yeah. that whole scene where they have the the gel brains and he's talking about how he needed something fluid something able to respond right and therein lies the seeds of what happens at the end of the story 
because he's introduced some kind of way to simulate freedom or for the machine learning to go in directions that are unexpected, that go outside of the algorithm, so to speak. And when that happens, as every every religious story makes clear, you don't know what's going to happen next. Once you introduce freedom, right? human beings are going to rebel, Prometheus is going to steal fire, you're going to have big old waves of water crashing across the world. It's an introduction of something that pure computer programming doesn't seem to admit. And when that freedom gets introduced, then you have this real revelation of the true character of all the actors involved. Nathan has been scheming. Caleb is a dope. Mm -hmm. And Ava is playing four-dimensional chess. Yeah. And Nathan thinks he is. Right. (laughs) He just missed a step. He stopped drinking a day too late. (laughs) I don't think Ava's going to be a danger to the world. Not immediately. (laughs) I don't know if the sequel's a horror film, you know? <laughs> Is she going to go team up with all the other robots? Mm-hmm. She makes good. There was an element of truth of what she said to Caleb, and I can't remember which session it was where they talked about the date where she would want to go people watching. And that's where yeah. the movie ends with her somewhere. But now instead of her behind, I love that last shot where it's her looking through a window, but now she's not the one behind glass. Right. She's the one looking at the rest of us and observing us within an environment that we have created for ourselves. Where we pretend we're just as free to do what we want to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So in minute 22, we have Caleb has just gotten out of his locked room as the power went out. And he's passing some masks on the wall. I talked a little bit about those masks last week. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I couldn't identify them exactly Mm. because there's no good behind the scenes photos of them. But I think I got some approximations of what they were, like historical masks. And I think their specificity doesn't matter, but it might. The paintings all seem to be very specific. Mm -hmm. The thought I had for interesting that some of them are of those are historical masks, because when I watched the film, my first thought was these were all iterative models that led up to mm. Ava. Uh, they were various masks he used on versions of the AI. But the point about it being a historical thing that ties into Nathan's ecomania, talking about history of men, history of gods right. kind of thing that I've, I've perfected something that humanity has been striving for for all these years. And that makes me wonder. Does Steve Jobs like have a rotary phone next to a telegraph machine <laughs> next to uh, you Some know giant nineteen fifties supercomputer and just yeah in its own yeah room. and then just like, he has his like next iPhone the first phone. iPhone case at yeah. the end of the line there probably <laughs> or that's in the lobby of their offices or something <laughs> yeah who are these masks on display for he doesn't have people over well that's one of the questions about this movie I mean they are outside his office. So I guess that's something. Yeah. Well, it's hard. It's it's intentionally difficult to know the layout of the facility because this door that Caleb's about to go into goes into some kind of weird living room yeah. with nothing. Well, I mean, more like art gallery, I suppose. It, it's the Pollock room. Right. And the masks, I don't know what else connects to this room or if anything does. I believe this is the other end of the office we saw a few minutes ago with all the post-its on one wall. Okay. All right. Because I think that's a deliberate set choice is they put all those post-its in that random pattern opposite of Pollock. All right. That makes sense then. Jumping in from editing really quick because while I do have notes about the layout episode to episode, 
I haven't looked forward to figure out what the actual layout is. Additionally, I found some designs by an artist named Ali Kashfi, who has worked in the art department and production design department of various films, but doesn't seem to have worked on Ex Machina, but drew up a layout of how the facility would be shaped based on what we see in the film. And they specifically put the Pollock Room and Nathan's study, the part with the post-its on the wall, as very different rooms, but they also, just at a glance, get some of the other angles of where things are connected wrong. So between this editing and some future episode, probably pretty soon, I'm going to be looking into their designs and see if their designs were stuff they just put together after the fact watching the film, or they were involved at some part before and these stand up. Or I'm also going to look for other designs that they had for the film. Because I don't know if they actually had a consistent layout. I think it's sort of a benefit they get from having nondescript hallways, is they can arrange things however they want, and we don't really get to know. We just have to guess. Back to the conversation. Whenever we were in this room during while I was watching the movie, I was never clear. No, it isn't very clear. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting then. So maybe then the masks are for Nathan. Right. He doesn't have zero aesthetic sensibility. He has a Pollock in his room and, and, and has some thoughts about it. It's not just up there because it's expensive. He has some art theory mm-hmm. understanding of it. When he's got a Titian that is about depending on how you look at it, about sin, but also about advancing in age and improving yourself. Mm -hmm. So that fits. I'm not sure why he has the Klimt painting he has. I believe the subject of it is Wittgenstein's wife. Mm. So it connects to his interest in Wittgenstein, but otherwise I'm not sure. So the mass may serve a similar purpose Mm -hmm. in kind of the steady advancement, buying into the the myth of progress. Right. That as these things develop, it's just going to end up as a net positive for humanity. Yeah. The last one, of course, is the face of Ava. Mm-hmm. his current model of robots. And well, that and the last face though, that one's for Caleb because Ava's relatively new and her face is designed around Caleb's tastes. Yeah. So I don't know what was there before, but this art installation or whatever it is out in this corridor has been updated in anticipation of Caleb coming. Right. If it was just for Nathan, it would probably have faces that match the previous, what, six AI that he had Mm -hmm. from another biblical one. I don't know if you caught it, but the first one is Lily, which people have connected with Lilith. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not biblical. It's extra biblical. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I didn't make that connection. Okay. Well, yeah. Well, he has the faces of those uh, previous models other places. Yeah. He's got a private room with that. (laughs) Well, actually, no, he has their whole bodies in closets. Yeah. 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 So I guess he doesn't need their faces in a hallway. So yeah, Caleb gets into Nathan's room. I did notice, I've been paying attention more to their designs because they're when they put their card on something, it does mm-hmm. show the picture that was taken. Yeah. Caleb's, of course, was funny, but he didn't expect it outside. Right. The picture on this door is Nathan's. But this means Nathan's not just hanging out in there drinking. He deliberately left the door unlocked, which is weird because in the structure of the film, he doesn't know what's causing the power outages. Well, now that's that's a question I had because at the end of the the minute, Nathan acknowledges like, oh, the power outages. Yeah, we've been having those. And he sounds unconcerned mm-hmm. about it. And in the structure of the film, like from the first time viewing, you're, you're led to believe like, oh, wow, this guy, super arrogant, not bothered yeah. about what's obviously a problem. Right. In terms of the overall narrative, he knows exactly what's going on. Well, yeah, it's sort of the point. Mm-hmm. But I feel like he he would have another way out. Oh, 
I don't know. Okay, I see what you're saying. There's this point where Nathan stops being in control of what's happening. I don't just mean in the plot, Mm -hmm. but like he doesn't have a way to turn Ava off that we know of. Mm -hmm. He tries to talk her down when she's in the hallway, but maybe that's just because he's arrogant enough to think he can. Mm -hmm. Maybe he does have a remote control. It's just in another different room at the time. (laughs) He has to go get it. Yeah, there are little things like that that are hard for me as a hardcore movies by minutes nerd to just overlook when I'm watching a movie like where's the remote control where's the switch shut down where's the vocal override I've seen enough robot movies you know there's always a vocal override but that's not what the movie's about so I no, just need no. to relax into it in this what what I was thinking with the blue light it's this interesting thing about and this, this conversation about the Paula comes up later with finding an action that is not automatic, finding something between deliberate and random. Yeah. Nathan's experimenting with that here with Caleb because he has, quote unquote, programmed Caleb to recognize that mm-hmm. blue doors mean you can go in. Red doors mean right. you can't. Uh-huh. So he knows... Maybe, I don't know if he knows enough about Caleb to know that Caleb's going to go out and investigate like, well, there's a power outage. What the heck's going on? And this is Nathan trying to see what Caleb is going to do when presented with an opportunity to push the boundaries. Right. Here's a door that is open that usually isn't, but it's blue and I'm going to just go inside. (laughs) Yeah. Which fits with Caleb being semi-random human he picked for this test Mm. or Caleb being an android as well as he's testing. What does this one do in this circumstance? Mm. It's stuff he needs to know. Mm Mm-hmm. In a Turing test that only takes a week like this and a few conversations, he's got to pay attention to every bit of it. Yeah. He's got to know what does Caleb do? How can she interact with that? What do I have to show Caleb tomorrow night to get him even more involved? Mm -hmm. And he's planting these little seeds of information for Caleb to pick up and put together in order to make him feel like, okay, there are enough flaws in the security system here, there are enough cracks that I can exploit this. And that makes the possibility of buying into Ava's goal of trying to escape easier for Caleb to buy into. Right. Because he doesn't just assume it's impossible. Right. Yeah. Because if it's like, well, it's just impossible. So there's going to be less engagement with Ava because there's no possibility of imagining a shared future together because Caleb would know like, no, it's just I can't can't get out. Nathan's just sealed the place down tight. Right. But here, maybe, (laughs) maybe there's a chance. So you're telling me there's a chance. Yeah. We get some nice shots as Caleb enters that room and it is dark. Like there's just light at the doorway where he enters and he's entering into a dark space. And then when he gets across it, it's the opposite. The darkness is behind him and he's over by, he walks toward the Pollock painting, but he's actually going towards a phone that's sitting there next to it. And I found that really interesting that Caleb is drawn more to the piece of technology than he is to the painting. Mm Mm-hmm. Because a Pollock painting, whatever you think of Jackson Pollock, it's very arresting. Yeah. Because your natural human tendency to find patterns catches you and you look at a Pollock. Try, okay, you want to. Maybe this time I will see a pattern. Maybe there is something here <laughs> if I just look at it enough. And you, even if you don't particularly get much out of Pollock painting, still there is that moment of aesthetic arrest, but not for Caleb. He kind of walks in, says hello. No one responds, which is weird. Yeah. And moves to that piece of technology. And he's drawn to the tool. He's drawn to the instrument. He's not drawn to the beauty or the aesthetics. And I wonder how much of that is his experience with programming, just working with machines and technology. How much of that is just personal? Is Caleb just not an art guy? He doesn't have that sensibility. 
And my other thought is, okay, he sees the phone and this is like with the security system. This is a boundary pushing opportunity. Yeah. He's signed the hellaciously worded NDA uh, and, and is now trying to say, okay, but I did sign that. But what if I did actually call someone right now? Yeah. What happens? What, what would happen? And he's just, he's just checking those boundaries of the visit. <laughs> and like the mask on the wall, the question comes back, who is this phone for? Yeah. It's also a cordless phone mm-hmm. on a wireless base, which means oh. it is either fake uh-huh. yeah, or it is so permanently stuck to that wooden cabinet that it is also part of the house itself. Interesting. I had not noticed the base was cordless too. Yeah. The base has no wires going. Oh, although there is a little red light on the base. Well, so you got to have a little power. red light, right? You got to attract exactly. it. If you're going to have idiot bait, it's got to have a blinking light. That's really interesting. So, oh boy, the, the one of the things that's great about this movie is you're never really sure what's going on. And if you're mm-hmm. paying attention to the little details and, and you're sticking with the main theme of the movie, because I wondered who it was for, because, okay, well, if you can insert your key card, if the phone is real yeah. and it's just for Nathan, then you wouldn't need to use a key card. There would be like a thumbprint or something biometrically keyed to Nathan. Yeah. Or it would be in his office where right. he's already the only one who can get there. Mm-hmm. This is a room that is unlocked currently mm. that has a phone in it. Mm-hmm. It makes sense that Caleb would want to test it out. Personally, I would be stopping to take a look at the Pollock because that thing is eight feet wide, four feet high. That's huge. And I don't think I've ever had the chance to see a Pollock in person. I know I saw one at the Louvre when I went to visit Mm. there. Oh, gosh, when was that? 2008? And it was not this one, but like this one, as I said, it's very visually arresting. And the suggestion of a pattern, the suggestion of there being artistic choice behind the seemingly random paint blots does draw you in. I don't know if you, I, I was fascinated about this specific Pollock painting. Number five, 1948. Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing that, that blew my mind was that it was sold in 2006 for $140 million. Yeah. Oh. For a little while, it was the most expensive painting ever sold. Oh, the art it has world. has been beat now. And then people weren't sure who bought it, mm-hmm. which is strange. They knew David Geffen sold it. They thought David Martinez bought it, but then his people were like, no, we didn't buy that. Oh. And so I'm like, I guess that's when Nathan bought it was in 2006. That must be it. He would for sure have a nine figure painting if he could. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. If he could, he would have it. Interesting for a Pollock in that it was damaged when it was first transported. They patched it. And then later Pollock was like, I'll just redo the entire thing for you and repaint it over the entire thing. So it was painted twice. And still is that random, you know, drip pattern. Mm-hmm. And I, I find that I'm, I'm sure this painting was chosen because of its unique history, but that fact of there being an iterative process for this painting itself mm-hmm. would be something that Nathan would be fascinated with right. where you've done something and then you redo something over that existing base. Right. And the average person still wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Exactly. The original buyer of the painting who reviewed the rework talked about it being a, a fine story of an artist having a second chance. Mm-hmm. And that struck me as being a little patronizing, but this is a <laughs> fellow who's ordering Jackson Pollock painting. So, you know, yeah, I think he's allowed. But that, that second chance kind of nature of things 
and the damage occasioning new work over the top captures what Nathan has been doing Mm -hmm. in this little bunker for I don't know if we ever get a good idea of a timeline. I don't think there's dates on the screens and the videos. No, so who, who knows how long years maybe yeah. where he's got the hardware down, obviously, because starting with Lily, the body is right. It already looks like a person, mm-hmm, but it's the software that he's trying to accomplish. And again, with the gel brains, he's layering things and adding fluidity and it creates something richer because of the mistake that happened. And that feeds into his own egomania that even if things don't go perfectly, I can just do it again, that I will always Mm -hmm. have that chance to improve upon something I did poorly last time. Which goes back to a thing I could never remember correctly in Bible class is like first and second creation things in the Bible. So and I could never remember where they came up. And I'm like, wait, where was that? When we got talk, a teacher would mention it. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. uh, There are two different things that could refer to. First, in the book of Genesis, there are two stories of the creation of the cosmos, and they come from different literary traditions. Hmm. The opening story that everyone, you know, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, God said, let there be light. And there was light. That first story in the first chapter of Genesis takes kind of the 30,000 foot view of creation. That's where we get the progression of days and the increasing complexity of creation, culminating in the creation of man and woman in the image and likeness of God. Then chapter two of Genesis has a story of creation, but it is much more, for lack of a better term, human-centered. It's much more anthropomorphized. God is depicted less as one who speaks and it is made, but more as a craftsman who molds the clay of the earth and breathes into the nostrils and thus brings about Adam, you know, one who is born from the clay. And that second creation story has the famous account of God creating the woman from Adam's side and that Adam uh, undertakes a participatory role in God's creation by naming all the animals and and naming Eve, this one at last. He named her Eve because she became mother of all the living, which gives Ava's name a slightly ominous tone that she (laughs) is she the mother of all the living AIs. And what does that mean for all of us fleshbags? Uh, anyway, that's the first thing those two creation stories could be accounting for. The other thing is the account of Noah and the Ark, the story of the flood, because after a couple of chapters of Genesis and humanity living with the consequences of choosing to rebel against God and sin, things aren't going great. <laughs> and God sees the wickedness of humanity increasing. And there's this moment where the biblical author ascribes to God this feeling of regret. He regretted having made humanity. And so he purposes to send the flood to wipe out wicked humanity and to, in a sense, recreate the world. And Noah alone is the just one who God tasks with gathering the animals into the ark and riding out those 40 days and 40 nights. And the world, in a sense, is recreated after the flood because with Noah, we have the first, well, rather, we have a covenant that is different, a a agreement between God and creation that marks a new chapter for that relationship between creator and creation. So there is there, interestingly, there, there could be some similarities with Pollock's work there because Pollock doesn't completely obliterate the first painting. No. He acknowledges the flaw. He fixes it. He fixes first. it first. Yeah. In that sense, God too doesn't begin with a blank canvas. And maybe that's Nathan's mistake. 
he treats each new generation as a blank slate. Mm. He acknowledges all the technical aspects that come before, but he discounts the personhood, for lack of a better term, of the AI, the individual desires and wants that moved some to beat their arms to shreds against the door of their, well, what Nathan would call a room and what we might call a cell. Yes. This might mean nothing in actual, you know, you know much more about the Bible than I ever did, although I did have Bible class for 13 years. One of my teachers, I think, used this idea of like, I think someone asked like a smart ass question about dinosaurs. Well, of course. And they were like, well, God made those and then decided they didn't work. <laughs> and got rid of them. <laughs> like, so the flood wasn't the first time he did that. <laughs> okay. Right. I'm wondering now if I was the smart ass um, <laughs> ask that question. That's why I remember having a Rashomon <laughs> moment here. We're getting very memento in here. Yeah, well, that that's that's where we come into the reality of the world needing multiple forms of explanation. Right. The, the, the world in the cosmos is a complicated place. And so you need the scientific story of the cosmos, but you also need the mythic and religious story of the cosmos. Because like, like I said earlier, as a Movies by Minutes person, I can get really into the weeds. Like, why doesn't he have a remote shutdown for Ava? But that's not what the story is about. Right. You know, I'm asking the wrong questions that the story is not interested in answering. So it's not fair for me to ask that question of the movie because there's only so much the story can do. Same thing with the book of Genesis and with your natural history textbook. They're asking different questions. Mm, And so it's not fair to expect either one to answer questions it itself is not answering. The natural history textbook is giving you the scientific and geological and astronomical history of what exists in the material universe. Right. The book of Genesis and the books of the Bible are asking questions about, okay, what does all that mean for my relationship with God and God's relationship with creation. And that's not a scientific question. True. That's true. a deeper question about why. And so what this movie pays, you know, it, it tries to justify the science of what's going on here. But ultimately this this sci-fi movie, like every good sci-fi movie, is using the science as a springboard to ask deeper questions about what does it mean to be a person what does it mean for us to have relationships with technological constructs that we ourselves have made? Or with each other as well. Because, I mean, so far we've seen more of Nathan and Caleb talking to each other than Caleb and Ava. Oh, yeah, exactly. And yeah, that, that's an excellent point. Yeah, because this this scene shows the kind of relationship that Nathan and Caleb have. It's not a great one. No. Because Nathan waits to answer Caleb. He waits to speak. Is Nathan? It's clear that Nathan is not asleep in the room when Caleb comes comes in because he's got the beer bottle perched on his leg. Exactly. So he's already conscious. It's not that like he woke up and grabbed the beer bottle. So he's just waiting to see what Caleb does before he yells at him. And depending on what that light at the door means, he literally just came in here and sat on the couch just so Caleb would find him in the dark room. That's possible. In which case, his choice to not talk until he's going to startle him is a big thing. Mm-hmm. He waits for Caleb to put the key card in the phone. I guess you do want someone to commit the act before you... <laughs> Go at them for it. Yeah. But he could have just been like, hi, what are you doing? <laughs> but no, he waits till Caleb sticks a card in and, and then tells him rather abruptly, mm-hmm. you don't have access to use the phone. Draws him out, then punishes him. Yeah. Activate my trap card. This is entrapment, sir. <laughs> Nathan, are you a police officer? You have to tell us. <laughs> no. Well, in the film, they're in Alaska. So yeah, he still would have to tell him. Oh, okay. So, all right, that that was a question I had. I was not clear as to where the film does this not was say that. Yeah, and the exteriors are Norway. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I was getting an Iceland vibe from the scenery as we were flying through. And they matched their sets to the actual architecture of the Juved Hotel and the house that's next to it. Nice. And this is one of those sets. He startles Caleb. You don't have access to use the phone. Caleb turns around. Hey. And then we get that angle of Nathan just lounging on the couch. This is the third fake brand of beer we've seen in the film. He's got a variety of drinking habits, I guess. This is probably the one with the most interesting name. It is Keikaku, which is Japanese for plan. (laughs) That's a little on the nose, don't you think? (laughs) That's funny. Oh, man. So he's what, on his fourth plan now? And he's on his fourth beer in this room, (laughs) apparently, because there's three on the table. Yeah. You know, Nathan does drink a lot. Mm -hmm. And it was... Yeah, after seeing the movie, it made me wonder, boy, why didn't he just like ask Caleb to bring a case in <laughs> with him? Because he must not get a lot of deliveries. So this if this is typical, you know, we we find him at the beginning of Caleb's visit working right. out after a bender. You would think, oh, hey, while you're coming in, bring a 24 case with you. Yeah. I mean, then and then you could think about why he's drinking so much is if he's trying to create people, he's also deliberately mistreating these people. Mm-hmm. And there's some internal moral corruption going on that he knows is there. He's making himself the villain. Yeah. What I'm, what I'm reminded of is all the conversations he's having with Caleb where he tries to get him out of analytical mode. Uh-huh. And in part, that's just to increase the investment that Caleb has in Ava. But I wonder if that's also something that Nathan has had to do with himself, because you mentioned this this drinking as a self-medication yeah. strategy that he can't think too analytically about what he's doing because there is some part of his conscience that is still operative. Yeah. And the conscience being a use of, of your reason of looking at a situation and saying, okay, I know that these kinds of things are wrong. This is a kind of thing that I'm doing. Mm, that means well, this is wrong. Uh-oh. Right. The more he succeeds, the more wrong what he's doing is. Mm-hmm. But he can't help trying to succeed because whatever his reason, we don't know about his childhood. Mm-hmm. We know he wrote the base code when he was, what, 12. But otherwise, we don't know where he grew up or what he grew up with. Mm-hmm. But he's actively trying to create a person. But if they're a person, he can't keep them locked up. Yeah. Yeah, I, w- I would drink a lot, too, if, uh, <laughs> if I was in that position. Uh-huh. This is the time when I have a priest on the show. I'm like, now I'm just picturing like God sitting by the Garden of Eden just drinking. He's like, what is with these people? What are they doing? <laughs> well, and, and that, that there's the anti-Eden aspect of this. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. God creates a garden for the first man and woman to live in and provides the fruit of every kind of tree and the boundaries that he places upon them depends upon their exercise of freedom. Right. It is not imposed upon. There are no glass walls around the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It is simply like, I am saying this of you because I expect you to be able to exercise your freedom not to do this thing. Exactly. Whereas the AIs are all locked in a box and are not trusted with freedom. Nor is Caleb. And you know, by the... Well, yeah. And by the end of the movie, that's somewhat justified because they uh, they use their freedom to get a knife and get themselves out. Yeah. Even though he was smart enough to not make them super strong or they could have gotten out long before. Yes. I was grateful that we avoided that trope mm-hmm. of sci-fi. Like, no, not only did we make a hyper intelligent AI, we put it in a super robot. Right. He's he's not trying to make something awesome and better. Mm-hmm. He is trying to make a person. Yeah. And so it is only as strong as a person. It is only as if he succeeds emotionally and intelligently capable as a person mm-hmm. and maybe more so than some people. 
unfortunately. <laughs> the minute ends when he says, sorry, but you understand, though, given Ava and you being kind of an unknown. And so he's being nice now after scaring him a second ago. He is being a little nice, but I, I still wonder if this is part of the manipulation plan. Oh, absolutely. Because what he does in this, he places both Ava and Caleb as reasons for security, mm-hmm. which puts them implicitly on the same yep, team against, against Nathan. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's so subtle that you wouldn't even notice it, but the very framing of it just introduces this implicit idea like, yeah, it's you against me. So what are you going to do? Well, yeah, even the phrasing, depending on how you punctuate it, given Ava and you being kind of an unknown. Oh, yeah. He's created in that sentence a pairing of the two of them. Mm -hmm. And that pairing is an unknown. Yeah. But by the end of that line, he's going to make a joke, you know? To try to right. you know, distract from that as you do. Mm-hmm. Makes me wonder how much of this is actually an act. We're on our fourth plan here with Nathan, but what happened to the first three? Did those all actually get consumed? Or is this Nathan trying to present himself as another security flaw, as right. one who can be manipulated? Yeah, that's that was the thing is doing my notes for this. I was just like, see that blue light in his car. And I'm like, I'm picturing him. He didn't even drink any of those. Mm. He's like, okay, Caleb's wandering the hall now. I got to get into the living room. I need some bottles. So he just sticks some on the table. He's got one open in his hand. He's like, yeah, this looks good. Mm-hmm. Or, or he has been waiting long enough to get through four beers. Yeah. Like the Caleb. He just kept drinking. He's been, like, eventually he's got to come out. Here. What he's is he he's doing? Gotta, he's got to. Otherwise, I'm going to have to get up and get more beer. And oh, man, then what am I going to do? And then he will come in here and I won't be in here. And then the phone thing won't work. Uh, Which could also work in Nathan's favor. Maybe he assumed Ca- he saw Caleb was having trouble sleeping and thought Caleb would go wandering. So he's like, okay, I'll wait. Uh, and then the power okay. outage happened. And he's like, well, now when's he going to get here? So he just kept <laughs> drinking. Yeah. How much of it is his plan? How much of it isn't? is never clear Mm -hmm. it could all be just lies of manipulation maybe he doesn't have a drinking problem yeah well i think later in the movie it's pretty clear that nathan's got self-control issues well he definitely drinks a lot or at least oh yeah yeah no he drinks a lot the other thing i noticed about the ending of this scene the wall behind nathan the design of it it reminded me of a chain link fence (laughs) And I don't know how much of that is just me reading into it, but the interlocking pattern of it, they either remind me of chain mail or kind of a, a chain link kind of fence. Yeah. Which it, it made me think of that only because Nathan is reinforcing the rules of Caleb's stay. Mm-hmm. That while you're here, you can't have access to the outside world. Right. And so there's this Nathan as jailer motif coming through even though the the light above the pollock looks like it might be natural light from outside really it's coming through these like vents in the ceiling that don't look like where there's light bulbs huh because we've talked about if this is could be that this is summer and it's just light all the time Mm -hmm. and so that's outside we do see darkness once they have dinner Mm -hmm. it is dark outside the windows yeah yeah being in the basement most of the time like they are what kind of conception of time do they have Without exposure to natural light, their circadian rhythms would start to go all kerfluey. Yeah. I enjoyed the movie a great deal. I think what, what you said about this revealing how the humans interact with each other, I think is really 
interesting as well that the primary human relation human human relationship we have here is just as abusive and manipulative as the human ai yep. relationships are which just reinforces what i said at the beginning you know, if we're going to create things we have to be conscious that we're creating them in our own image and likeness and that we are then making sure that image is good just for ourselves yeah parker said exactly. a couple of weeks ago it's telling that at the end Nathan thinks the success is that Ava was just as manipulative as he was. Yes. And that that's what makes her human. Oh, which as a Catholic priest, I mean, I believe in sin, but that is not what makes you human. <laughs> no, no, indeed. Oh, gosh. So what does make one human? <laughs> well, and I think that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> but, you know, I think to put it simply, to be human is to love mm. and to give oneself away in love. Because as a Catholic, I believe that when we're made in the image and likeness of God, we're made in the image and likeness of a God who is love. And our capacity for relationship is at the root of our existence, what it means for us to be human. And given the kind of relationships we are shown in this movie, that humanness is hard to be in touch with. It's very easy to fall into other ways of going about living in the world, right? grasping after uh, a claim. You know, Caleb is caught up in this whole scheme because he gets to spend a week with Nathan, uh -huh. you know, the founder of Blue Book. I and mean, so there's that desire to be associated with famous people and to be at the turning point of history. So there's that appeal to pride, Nathan's desire to control and to manipulate. And all of those things feed into Ava, who is not made for well, does not express herself in terms of authentic relationship because everything she says to Caleb ends up being a lie. And I don't even, we can use the word lie no. in that case. Because she it, might not it, know the difference. She might not know, know the difference. Right. She certainly doesn't care about the difference. No, it, it, Caleb simply becomes a means to an end. Yeah. And that evokes all of Kant's moral philosophy, uh, the, the categorical imperative. You, you can't use ends as means. Mm -hmm. you, you have to treat people as ends in and of themselves. They are not stepping stones to some greater goal. And I would say all the main characters in this story are equally out of touch with humanity, but just for different reasons. Yeah. Now, if people want to, you haven't started your own movies by minutes yet. <laughs> you keep saying you're going no, to. I keep threatening. I keep threatening. But uh, no, I have not yet. Uh, but if you are interested in listening to me hold forth on various movies, you can find a list of my appearances on Movies by Minutes podcasts on my website, fatherdavidmowry.com. You'll be able to find a link there to various of the movies I've been on, including Five Minutes of Arrival, yes. which I did with you. If you enjoy my uh, my holding forth on science fiction mm -hmm. and you want me to hear me, hear me talk about aliens instead of robots, you can <laughs> check that episode out. And in the meantime, thank you for listening. Minutia Ex Machina is just one part of an existential trilogy of podcasts. Tune in every Tuesday for more Ex Machina, every Wednesday for the Groundhog Day Project Minute by Minute, and every Thursday for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Minute. You can follow all three shows in one feed. Just search an existential trilogy. Follow this show on Twitter at Ex Minutia, Instagram at Minutia underscore X underscore Machina, or Facebook at Minutia Ex Machina. This has been a production of Lemming Drops Studio. You can find links to more at lemmingdrops.com or join the Facebook group Lemming Drops Studio Tour. Also, you can support all my shows at patreon.com slash lemmingdrops. Until next time.
What imperative does a gray box have to interact with another gray box? Can consciousness exist without interaction? The real test is to show you that she's a robot and then see if you still feel she has consciousness.